Youth Semester 2022. It's Identity and Identification, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Kern Goss. Co-hosting the series with me is Amanda Tinkle and Kate O'Brien. Today's guest for IU Semester is Andrew Weaver, an associate professor in the Media School at Indiana University. Professor Weaver has conducted research in media psychology, race in media, and media violence, as well as cognitive science. Broadly, he describes his field of research as media psychology, where he focuses into the sectors of race, violence, and moral choice in different media forms. Professor Weaver conducts his work to answer why people consume certain media content and how that affects them psychologically. He has had work published in each field, being repeatedly featured in the Journal of Media Psychology and Journal of Communication. Professor Weaver teaches a multitude of courses at the media school, including race prejudice in the media, which highlights media inequality when it comes to different biases surrounding race and representation. Today, we sit down with Professor Weaver to discuss how media impacts identity and the complications that come with it. So um, just to start off, can you go ahead and discuss your field of um, expertise related to how media consumption kind of affects individuals? Sure. So my research background is on media psychology, so or in the area of media psychology, I should say. So uh, studying how uh, media impacts cognition and emotion and uh, looking at the way audiences process uh, the content that they see in the media. So I've looked at things like the impact of media violence. I've looked at um, how race uh, operates in a media context in terms of both what audiences might be interested in consuming and also in terms of how it affects things like stereotyping and prejudice. Um, and I've looked at moral psychology in the context of media. So how it affects our um, moral judgments and uh, how we how we just make moral judgments in the first place in, in the context of um, say observing characters or engaging with characters in a video game context. I realized before I ask you and speak to you, I have to unmute. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's almost gonna have a full conversation to no one. Um, I think that's a really good thing to talk about though, really interesting as well. Uh, something that I actually wanted to ask you about, um, kind of based on what you were just telling us about is, would you be able to describe kind of your course that talks about introduction to media psychology and sort of how media and human psychology sort of intersect, if you could? Sure, and, and that's a great question. and and. Um, thinking about the con this uh, that is media effects in the context of how our brain works and how we process um, information just in the world around us, I think is really important. And, uh, and one of the things we talk about a lot in that class is that um, our brains don't operate differently just because something is mediated, right? We don't have a separate part of our brain that that is responsible for um, processing social media messages or processing television images or, or whatever it might be. We, we process those using the same framework as we do for our quote unquote real world interactions. And so understanding how emotion works and understanding how cognition happens and understanding information processing from a broader perspective really helps us understand what the impact of media might be 
on those processes. And so that's that's our approach in that class and, and my broader approach in my research as well is just thinking about um, thinking about the impact of media through that psychological lens. Yeah, and I think I took your class, I think last, when it was online, asynchronous last, right. last summer, I think, or last spring. And I really enjoyed the class. And one of the things that I remember so vividly as we talked about is the consumption of media um, in childhood and how that affects us. So I was wondering if you could go into like that and explaining how the consumption of media affects us as children and, and as we grow up, how that kind of shapes who we are in terms of identity and our development. Sure. And so I think that's a big topic, right? And we could spend, <laughs> there are courses on just children and media uh, in the media school. But um, in a nutshell, I think that the most important thing is that media is a source of information for us. And so as children certainly even as adults really we're we're constantly craving information for example about social situations about um well anything really that we don't have experience with firsthand and media provides us with this right and so one thing you notice with kids for example is that they are all else being equal most attracted to content that features characters that are just a few years older than they are they don't, they prefer that to content with characters their age, and certainly to characters that are younger. And one reason for that is that they're using it to, to learn. Uh, even if non-consciously, they're, they're still using that as a way to um, get information, right, about, you know, what's it like for a, for a four-year-old? What's it going to be like to go to kindergarten for a sixth grader, what's it going to be like to be in middle school for a middle schooler? What's it going to be like to be in high school? You know, at every level, there's there's all of these unknowns about um, what you might experience. And we, we crave information about that. And so we seek that sort of thing out. I know my kids now, they love um, watching YouTube videos and YouTubers and TikTokers and all of that kind of stuff. And um, and the content that they're watching, it follows that same pattern, right? It's it's kids that are just a little bit older than them, and and you know they're it's it's for an older person, it mostly just looks like nonsense, right? Like, and, and you wonder why in the world would they voluntarily consume this kind of content where people are just screaming at the at the camera and whatnot? But it it provides a useful uh, again, set of information, whether that information is accurate or not is another question and a potential concern, but they're learning about how slightly older people act and interact with others. Um, and that's useful. Kind of reflecting on that, and, and honestly, one of the questions that I had, one of the big debates that I feel that is happening in media today is, is taking on sort of violent content or violent media, which I know is something that you have been studying and working on. And something that I was curious about is based on some of your research where you focus on media violence and you focus on, on sort of video games as well, could you maybe discuss like some of the results of your studies and also maybe your thoughts on the, the question of if violent video games or violent media does shape 
children or people who consume it, how, how are they shaped and how does that actually change them? Uh, this is a great question. And, and you know, it's, a, it's uh, as with most things, and we look at human behavior, it's complicated. Um, but uh, the impact is, is a very subtle one. There is an impact of consuming violent content, but it's it's not um, it's never going to be the case that somebody say watches a violent movie or plays a violent video game and then just randomly starts aggressing against like their roommates or others that they might encounter. Um, we're not sort of mindless zombies in that way, and sometimes that's the way people talk about the effect. And and I don't well, I know that that kind of thing generally doesn't happen. Um, what's much more likely to have an impact is that, or, or I should say the way this is much more likely to happen is that we, um, again, we learn from the information presented that violence is appropriate in contexts, it's acceptable in certain contexts because most of the violence we consume, whether that is in violent video games or violent movies or TV, um, it, it's, glamorized, it's justified, it's perpetrated by heroic characters, it's it's generally treated positively. We don't often see consequences. Um, we don't see the harm that's caused. Uh, in fact, uh, sort of ironically, I guess, the, the thing that most, say, parents are concerned about is graphicness, is showing that harm in, in realistic ways that's what they don't want their kids exposed to but um, because of that we get the sanitized version which reduces our inhibitions against aggression uh, so if you think about how aggression works in the moment right we we have violent impulses often right that comes from a very primitive part of the brain anytime we perceive provocation, that's a possible automatic sort of response is that we want to punch the person in the face that that did whatever to us, right? Or we want to do something to them. And most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time that we have these impulses, we don't act upon them, right? What's maybe remarkable is that we aren't violent more often uh, than we are. I mean, we can all probably think about times in the last few days where it's like, gosh, I would have liked to just, you know, um, <laughs> resolve to this uh, provocation that this person perpetrated against me with, with a violent act, but we don't, we inhibit it. The, there's a, a more um, uh, advanced part of the brain, a more developed part of the brain, the executive center that is going to take those primitive impulses to aggress and is going to say, you know what, that's probably not the right way to respond here. There are going to be consequences to my actions. There, the other person might respond with violence. There's a lot of reasons, right, that we would inhibit those impulses. And so we don't act. If we're constantly getting information, however, that violence is okay, violence is acceptable, violence is a good thing, right, then that can start to break down those inhibitions. It doesn't guarantee we're going to behave with aggression. It just makes it less likely that we would inhibit those violent impulses in the moment. That's a really interesting response. And honestly, as a, as a good response, as considering that I have heard a lot of, of content about how 
it's interesting because I've I've heard a lot of content about how video games and sometimes violent video games can can shape identity, can shape development, can shape how people act. And so while I definitely agree this is definitely a very complex subject because humanity itself is complex, I think this is a great way to continue that conversation and to keep talking about how especially as video games develop, especially as we release more content, we release more media, and some of it is violent. I think it's really interesting to be able to talk more about that and to be able to understand sort of who we are as people and how we develop and how sometimes media can and sometimes doesn't play a role in all of that. Um, Absolutely. So and, and there's a huge caveat with video games too, where um, you, you really have to understand how people are processing the, the, what they're playing, right? So um, what might look violent to an observer, like somebody playing Call of Duty and just mowing down soldiers left and right, if the player isn't processing those acts as violence, right? If, if these are just tasks I have to complete to get to the next level, and I'm just pushing buttons to make those things go away so that I can move forward, and I'm not thinking about it, I'm not processing it as I'm trying to hurt these other characters, then the violence in the video games would have no impact because it wouldn't affect that process at all. It wouldn't, um, it wouldn't relate to inhibition of violent impulses, for example. Uh, it wouldn't influence our perception of, of hostile attribution, that is how violent other people might be. Um, so it, it doesn't affect the process in any way if we, don't, if we don't process that immediate act as violence. So that's another complication to think about is, well, how are we... How are we processing the content and how is the player in this case? Now with the, with the television show, say it's hard to, <laughs> to, to take a violent act and, and perceive it as anything but a violent act, right? Um, but games are different in that context. And so it's, it's worth thinking about that. And we have the same kind of, I mean, if you were to survey just a bunch of parents say about what kinds of video game content they're most concerned about, um, it would be, again, the type of video game with that displayed consequences that showed um, uh, people in agony, say, from, from being uh, injured uh, in, in, in pain. It's the uncomfortable stuff. But that is a, a little bit counterproductive to worry about that because the fact that it is uncomfortable is actually a good thing, I would argue. Right, because that is forcing us to think about the fact that you know violence isn't a good response, and violence has consequences. It actually builds up the inhibitions rather than breaking them down. Um, so uh, it, you have to really address each of those sorts of elements to understand what the effect might be. And it's not a clear cut: violence is bad or violence is good. Um, or violence has a strong effect or violence has no effect. There, it, it's in the middle somewhere in the, in the sort of messy area uh, when we think about impact. That's really interesting. And I think honestly, that's a, that's a good thing to divide between is talking about video game content and also like television movie content and how different that is, especially because as we consume both medias that implores us to react differently and also adapt through it differently. So I think that's actually a really good point to make, especially in terms of understanding how vast media is and also how different it is in general. 
Um, something I did want to ask, sort of talking actually about media consumption, um, sort of, I guess my question is sort of with the use of sort of algorithms, does media consumption reflect an individual's identity or to some degree perhaps influence it, especially in this day and age? I think it's both. Um, I, I think it's a it's a process that works in both ways. Uh, we were talking about children earlier. I mean, I, th I think um, part of the process of of building an identity. I mean, that's something that that is an ongoing process that happens over time, right? So we don't spring from the womb with an already fully formed sense of who we are. Uh, that develops, and especially develops starting around six, seven, eight years old, and through adolescence. Um, right, kids are really starting to break away from, from their family sort of identity and, and start to forge their own. And media plays a, a really important role in giving, um, giving us sort of a template to guide us, right? If we think about how much we use media to define ourselves in terms of our musical taste, in terms of our uh, our favorite TV shows and movies, and do we play video games or not? So what do, social media sites do we use, right? If, if you're talking to somebody for the first time to get a sense of who they are, these are all questions that you ask, right? Like, what kind of music do you like? What kind of TV shows do you watch? What, um, I don't know, YouTubers do you follow? I'm showing my age here, so I don't know all the uh, specifics there, but that that becomes part of who we are, right? And it's not entirely the case that, that media shapes the identity. Obviously, we're playing a role in terms of seeking out certain kinds of content, um, but it does give us a, a guide to follow, right? Like if we're, um, if, if we and our friends in adolescence and middle school uh, all listen to country music, let's say, then that is like a ready-made identity package in terms of not just what you listen to, but how do you dress and how do you talk and what kinds of things do you do in your free time? And, and, um, and so we can use that as almost a script, right? To, to build an identity, especially when we're still trying to figure out who it is that we actually are. Uh, so I do think that, that that plays an important role. Definitely. And now with like, whenever I was in high school, I don't think that we'd got like things like Chromebooks and things like that until I was in sixth grade. But now these there's kindergartners that are starting out with it, kids in preschool starting out with it, but way before they go to school, they're starting out with technology and using, um, iPads, cell phones, Chromebooks, and as, as a learning um, tool and a learning process. And I was wondering if you had any uh, thoughts or any information about how these kind of devices like iPads affect learning and development. Is it overly positive, overly negative? What kind of effects does that have on like development of uh, children? I think that the, the technology itself is uh, neutral. <laughs> Right, it, it all depends on how you use it, right? And, and how people use it. And um, that's one of the things, and we, we talked about this a little bit in my class as well, but th this is one of the things that um, 
people tend to get a little bit too excited about or too concerned about what technology's impact is. There's a lot of hyperbole about technology and what it's doing to us. Uh, and with every new technology, even going all the way back to when newspapers started being a thing, right? You have this pretty vocal group that is concerned about how this is changing things for the worse. Um, and so we see a lot of that kind of thing now, complaints about how, uh, say, your generation is, is always buried on their phones and how social media is, is ruining things and, and all of this other kind of stuff. And um, again, bringing it back to sort of a media psychology point of view, we're still using the same brain to process all of this. We still have the same basic needs and goals and our emotions are still driven by the same sorts of stimuli and so on and so on, right? It's the technology doesn't change our brains. The fact that, you know, now smartphones exist doesn't mean that our brains are different now than they were 30 years ago. The fact that kids, back to your question, have access to iPads and Chromebooks and things like that at an early age, and they're using that to get their lessons, isn't inherently good or bad. Um, it's just a more efficient way to deliver certain kinds of information. That said, right, that there are good and bad ways to use the technology. Um, and if we think about kids, especially in a learning context, seeking information and, and trying to um, trying to find things that are going to aid in their development and their understanding, um, there's certainly content that they can access online, say, that is uh, not going to be very useful. <laughs> and in fact, could be kind of harmful in terms of setting up um, problematic perceptions, say, of certain groups um, problematic, uh, scripts for how to interact with other people. Um, I mean, there's, there's, you know, we all know, right. That there's a lot of, uh, advice and information out there that is going to be potentially very harmful and kids can access that much more effectively and efficiently now than they ever could. Um, and so, that's that's the big change by the same token right they can access really useful information much more easily than they ever could and so um we do have to be careful with the technology that we're giving them and and we have to think about you know how they are actually using it and what they're actually consuming um but it could have have really positive effects as well yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like, technology is neutral. It's just like um, technology has given us. Oh, I lost her. <laughs> Come back. No. So here's technology being. Here's technology being neutral. <laughs> It didn't like that we were talking about technology. And so apparently it was, it was like, oh, you guys have decided to <laughs> discuss um, it to a degree. Sentient. This is a start of technology taking over. All right. Well, I'm going to use my other technology to see if I could get her back. <laughs> <laughs> Come back. Oh. 
Adrian will be around here with us. All right. Well, while we wait for Amanda to resurface, um, I will ask. I will ask one of the, one of our our final questions, and it's a bit it's a bit of a big one. So I feel free to expand on this as much as you'd like. Um, I feel compelled to ask. So so what does our media consumption mean, sort of on a grander scale of of like humanity and society? Um, sort of asking like, how have these technological advances kind of changed people and sort of our societal views in general, especially as we develop into sort of like social media, sort of more, more content and being accessible to a new generation, kind of what does all of that mean on our grander scale of things? That is a big question. And I, I think, again, it, it's, it's really at its core, all the new media technologies that, that we have access to just make us more efficient. Um, if you think about uh, dating, for example, now people, there's a lot of like apocalyptic articles that I keep seeing uh, about like how uh, dating for a new generation is sort of ruined and Tinder and the like have, have destroyed sort of how social relationships work and, and that sort of thing. And um, the real impact has not been to um, change things like our motivations for being in relationships, our goals for what we get out of these social relationships, uh, or even what you know we're looking for, say, in a partner and other kinds of contexts. It's it's really more about um, making it easier to have access to lots of different people and, and lots of different types of relationships and so on and so forth. Now, that increase in efficiency can have harmful impact. Again, it can, it can drive certain people further apart in certain kinds of contexts. It can, um, uh, you know, if a person isn't motivated, say, to get in a long-term relationship, it can, it can make them more uh, selective and choosy and uh, it can make it harder to find compatibility, people less willing to um, uh, compromise, for example, in certain like what they're looking for in relationships because the pool is perceived to be so large. But um, the, the, the psychological core hasn't really changed. And so I think life today looks a lot different than it did 10, 20, certainly 50, 60 years ago um, in terms of how we spend our time, for example, and, and you know, the kinds of screens that we might be looking at and where we get information, et cetera. Um, but most of that, most of those things are surface level changes. You know, we're still looking for the same kinds of things out of life. If you wanna talk about this on a really grand scale, uh, we still have the same kinds of big picture hopes and dreams. We still are looking for the same kinds of big picture gratifications. Um, and, and those aren't, aren't going to go away, right? It, it's, if we can find a way to fulfill those gratifications in a mediated way, then we will because it's easier. Um, if we can't, then we'll look elsewhere. Um, so it's, it, it 
feels like there's these big upheavals and it feels like there's this huge change in terms of, of how people spend their time and so on. And, and certainly there are changes, um, but it's not quite as paradigm shifting, I think, as it's often talked about. good to reflect on I think that's good to talk about especially in an era yeah where almost as as a journalism student almost every article that I've read on media is about media on the, the change of the world everything's changing ah everything's crazy there's media Instagram's pink and there's this this whole <laughs> almost epiphany of the fact that like media is changing so what does that mean and so I think that's a really good, I, I completely agree with you in terms, I think that's a really good comment to have about how we as people based on our identity and based on our sort of like morals and goals and narratives certainly have changed over time and will certainly continue to do so. But the factors that we determine change those things are not so black and white or so cut one and done. And so I think that's a really good comment to talk about how, how media is definitely changing and how we as people are definitely changing. And those are connected to a degree, um, but that we all kind of change progressively. And I, I think that's, I don't know, I think it's a really interesting comment to have. And I think it's really good take to talk about how, how everything is changing and kind of what that means and definitely in terms of, of consumption of media and how we've been consuming media since decades and decades and centuries ago. And so uh, I think it's a really good comment to have uh, in, in terms of talking about that, yeah. One of the things also to think about and, and one of the things that maybe we need to do a better job of teaching like kids and so on is, is that we do have so much more choice available to us in terms of the kinds of information that we have access to, right? I mean, it, it, it used to be pretty straightforward where we get information about the world. Um, we'd only have a few media outlets and parents and friends and siblings and so on uh, that, would, that would kind of inform our worldview. Um, now, like you can, you can find uh, anything right? Anywhere, pretty easily. Um, and as we were saying, some of it's going to be good and accurate and useful and a productive way to sort of inform yourself about the world and some of it's not. And so trying to understand, you know, uh, the implications of that, of having all of that choice and how we can make good choices in that context um, it becomes really important. That's a skill that kids need now that, that like we didn't need when I was a kid, because uh, there wasn't enough choice for that to be an issue. Um, but now, right. I mean, we need to, we need to be able to figure that out and, and things like, um, uh, truth, right. Become important issues to consider and, uh, and what that means and things like identity become important issues to consider and to think about uh, in that broader context of uh, an abundance of choice. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for telling us all this information. Um, 
I really appreciate you coming out here and talking to us about this. I think understanding media consumption and understanding, 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 um, sort of how we develop, especially in terms of like media psychology and children is really important discussion to have, especially as we look at a new generation. And as we look at, at uh, people, even who are college students coming into college and understanding what it means to consume more media, I think is a really good discussion to have. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for coming out and having this conversation with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. Amanda, you got cut off. Was there anything that you wanted to? Uh... Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm not sure my internet's not great, but I just want to say thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed having that class with you and I learned so much, which is why I wanted to be able to interview you today. So thank you again for just joining us. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. And uh, sorry you had to take the class when it was asynchronous and not in person like yeah. you've gotten real used to this background uh, that I've got here yeah videos but uh, um but yeah I'm glad I'm glad you liked it and yeah thanks for inviting me mm -hmm. of course thank you so much sure and if there's anything else you need just uh just let me know be happy to help yeah thank you sure. thank you yeah episode is a part of IU Bloomington's 2022 semester, Identity and Identification. To learn more about this year's theme, today's guest, or Themester events, visit themester.indiana.edu. Themester, Identity and Identification, is sponsored by Indiana University's College of Arts and Sciences and created in part by producer Brooklyn Shively and Themester director Tracy B. Thank you for listening.